0: Hello, hello, hello. Uh, Welcome to the show. We're just about to get started. Hey, hello. Yeah, Yeah, hello, bro. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, yeah, uh, I was just telling everyone that uh, we are here for episode 63 of Conversations on India. And uh, today uh, we have a lineup of three topics for you. So uh, let's see how long this episode is. But the first topic is going to be uh, the state of the public schools in India. Uh, So uh, we're also going to cover uh, the public education sector and, uh, you know, its impact on uh, the nation overall. Then uh, we're also going to cover the India-UK relationship as uh, the United Kingdom uh, or or the British Prime Minister was uh, just here, Boris Johnson. And uh, we've always had, you know, a, a historic relationship with Great Britain. And uh, right now, it looks like it's going to go up to the next level. So let's see how it goes, what is in it for both sides. And the third one is the uh, increasing fuel prices in India. So petrol and diesel uh, prices uh, keep going up, uh, how it affects the economy, how it affects the uh, normal people, and how it affects India's position uh, in in the world overall. So we're going to talk about all of these topics. Uh, without further ado, uh, let's get started. So uh, Panda, do you want to get us started on the first one?
1: Yeah. The first topic is public schools in India and the context of discussing this topic is that uh, after this lockdown, uh, the covid lockdown that we have uh, we have had, after that there has been an increasing trend uh, in the enrollment ratio in public school when compared with the private school and this is a skewed trend compared to the last decade. You know, The number of uh, enrollments in private school were much much higher when compared to public school. But lately, especially in the lower classes, class 1 and class 2. The percentage of children being enrolled in uh, private school uh, has gone down and public school has gone up by as much as 9% in, for class 1 and 14% for nine, class 2. This is based on a report that was released by Acer, uh, Pratham NGO, the Acer report, Annual Status of School Education Report in India. So basically, <coughs> uh, this topic is in that context uh, that you know public schools are back in limelight uh, because the number of enrollment ratio is going high. Now, what needs to be done, and the status of uh, the public school in India as of now, is what we are going to discuss on. Right. So, public schools in India, you know, they have had a very bad image. Uh, And it is usually, you know, said that uh, schools, uh, people tend to go in private school and public colleges. So, this is the status in India. This is uh, the trend that is going on. And, uh, but, you know this this was not the scenario say 20 or 30 years back when public schools, uh, in fact few public schools uh, as of now, uh, they still have maintained their well, uh, decent record but the trend after that has lately been that uh, more enrollments were being done in the private sector, in private schools rather than the public school. right? Uh, just because of a few things that is first is the lack of basic facilities that is uh, devoid in public school. Uh, it is not the lack of funding or something like that, it is just that the implementation of the funding is not being done. Uh, at a proper level. You know, this is a data by uh, UDICE. UDICE is a platform that has been created by Ministry of Education to collect all these facts and uh, stats. It is unified district uh, data. Right. Second thing is uh, that the teacher to student ratio in public schools is also uh, very poor when compared with the private school. You know, the right to education has al- uh, already maintained a ratio of uh, approximately 1 is to 20. One is to 24, uh, one teacher for 24 students. But this ratio is not maintained in the public school. You know there is uh, vacancies and that is created in the public school, uh, which is not the case in private school. You know, now the, since that private school op- uh, operate on the maximum profit making business, so they provide better facilities, more interactive facilities. They are uh, acted with the latest technology. You know, so when COVID pandemic had hit, uh, private schools were relatively able to cop up. Because you know the students were already well aware with the digital uh, equipment and uh, all the uh, surroundings. But you know uh, when compared with the public school uh, only 13% of the uh, public schools in India were connected with the internet. So that goes to show that you know uh, the lack of basic internet facility in school in uh, in public school was such high. So it, it can be seen as uh, this uh, same would have been reflected even in the performance of the students later on. So this was the basic context. Now I would like to know your views on, uh, you know, why is this, uh, this people have a, a, a very bad negative sense towards the, uh, public school, the apathy that is created towards the public school, uh, vis-a-vis public colleges, which have a very good reputation.
0: Right. So, so, so the point you make is exactly right that, you know, every parent wants their kid to get into a government college, but when it comes to schooling, uh, the reputation of, uh, government schools is, uh, you know, not as high. And uh, that is actually with with good reason because India's public schools face multiple challenges. Uh, on on the foreign level, there are infrastructure challenges where uh, you know there is just not enough quality infrastructure to educate all of India's children. So uh, you know the, the the current demographic trend is that that the uh, that the level of population currently uh, in the in the school-going age is actually the highest in uh, you know it it's ever going to be in India. Because after that, the demographic trend is sort of going to reverse. So right now is the time when we need the most, uh, you know, um, schooling facilities, uh, like as, as as many as we can. And India's schooling infrastructure is is, is, is just not up to par. Uh, in, like uh, to, to the city schools that I have been anecdotally and, and you know, in general also reading the reports, uh, the, the, these schools often lack, uh, you know, basic uh, infrastructure such as labs. Or uh, you know, uh, quality classrooms or uh, quality teachers or uh, you know, uh, good good support system for for, for teaching. So uh, in, India's public schools still operate uh, you know um, in, in in the past and and they're yet to be brought up to speed uh, yet to be uh, you know introduced to all the latest technologies. So that is one uh, lack of infrastructure is, is is a huge uh, you know uh, drawback then uh, another one is actually uh, the student teacher ratio that you mentioned and this is a problem that uh, you know can be seen across all government services it's it's not just uh, you know that we don't have enough teachers we also do not have enough doctors in a primary healthcare sector uh, and we do not have enough policemen uh, to, to to you know uh, keep law and order in place and uh, at the same time the government runs huge deficits in in its budgets uh, so uh, like we are also managing huge fiscal deficits so, uh, the, this is like a, you know, a, 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 a sword with two edges, that on the one side, if you increase the hiring, uh, you would also increase the load on the taxpayer and, and your fiscal deficit. And on the other side, you're compromising on education, on law and order, on public health, by not having enough personnel uh, in, in your staff. And of course, uh, this is a classic public uh, administration problem, and uh, you know, uh, not much can be done unless we can find a way to increase the impact every teacher has. So you know, uh, when we used to have offline classes and everyone used to uh, go into class physically to study, that is when the one to twenty-four ratio was really valid. But these days, with the power of the internet, with the power of technology, a single good teacher can actually uh, you know educate millions, if 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 not more uh, people. So uh, what India really needs to do, because India cannot really hire uh, you know say ten million more teachers by tomorrow, uh, because those teachers also have to be there and, and you know all, all of these factors have to align but what we can do is actually uh, try to leverage technology in order to deliver this education uh, which is what brings me to my third point that uh, you know uh, because of the COVID pandemic and uh, because of all the school shutting down for almost two years there has been a heavy learning loss and and if you see like who is who has had the worst outcome from that learning loss It is actually, uh, you know, uh, the kids who are studying in government schools or or the poor and vulnerable kids. Because the private schools and, uh, you know, uh, parents with means have been able to get their kids educated at home. Whether it is through online Zoom classes or, uh, you know, teachers taking uh, remote, uh, you know, sending remote notes, uh, doing tests online uh, or or whatever be the case. But uh, the large majority of India's children actually do not have access to those online services. And for them, it is vital that, uh, you know, the uh, offline schooling comes back online so that, uh, you know, they can start getting that education again. So uh, this huge learning loss is actually another problem being faced by all the students in uh, government public schools, uh, which is, uh, you know, they they haven't really got to quality education in two years. And uh, the the pandemic looks like, uh, you know, every time they get started, it it sort of uh, comes back to disrupt them. So uh, uh, I, I, the technology adoption again hurts uh, the public schooling system in India. So, uh, like uh, th- these are some points of uh, drawback which I think limit the potential of of uh, in Indian public schools. And uh, I would also like to mention that uh, you know various state governments have had uh, these initiatives of trying to improve their schooling systems in 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 states. So, for example, Kerala is an example that comes to mind and uh delhi is another example that comes to mind uh, but uh like uh as, as the pratham uh, report indicates and also other education reports uh, that have come out these uh th- these policy efforts have actually been more uh fiction than fact and uh you know po- uh, like uh improving the education system at least in delhi seems to be uh, a, a political uh statement not really uh, something that is happening on the ground not until at least we can see those results in in, in test scores or, or in some other metric uh, that might come up and uh, which which brings me to my final point that actually uh, what we need uh, is, is, is you know a, a transparent index of uh, you know how we are educating our kids. So uh, I, I don't know if test scores is the right way to go about it because we all know how uh, in, Indian board exams and uh, school exams in general uh, go in India, uh, they are not really a good metric for ed- education. So what we need to do is actually come up with uh, a a metric that can measure the state of our education because we can't really manage what we can't measure. So, uh, you know, uh, what we need to understand is, uh, you know, rank all the states as Niti Ayog often does in, in all of its rankings, whether it is trade or public infrastructure. So we need to come up with a similar ranking for education as well. And uh, then what we need to do is have a spirit of competitive federalism and have uh, different states embrace their uniqueness and and try to introduce that into their public education system. So I I think these are all going to be uh, steps which will help us improve. But I'm sure we'll come back to that later. Uh, I'll, I'll hand it back over to you.
1: Right. You know, you have mentioned a very important point and it is often said that what gets measured gets implemented. So I think mm-hmm. so it is, uh, you know, a very uh, important parameter that uh, the learning outcomes from the public school needs to be measured in a much more practical way rather than the rot learning process that is currently going on. Second thing, what I personally feel is, you know, going by my personal experience, I have been to government school for, uh, I would say, just, just pre-pandemic for about six months. You know, I had uh, accompanied my mother. So there, there is this model school that has been created. It is, uh, It is a model for other schools. Uh, I I would not take the name, but that school Mm -hmm. is something where even the private, uh, the students that are studying in the private school, you know, they uh, want to get into that school and they are not able to get into that school. Uh, The quality of the standards that have been built of that school is so high, you know, there is test for the uh, entrance and it is completely public school, you know, it is a normal uh, senior secondary school, you know, government senior secondary school, as GSSS, this is what is the code that is used in Haryana. So uh, that has been created, and it is doing wonders. You know uh, that uh, in in that area, in the complete area. Uh, that school gives the best result be it uh, not only in terms of studies board results but also at the uh, uh, representation at national level when it comes to Olympiads and stuff like that and this is a government school you know so I think so much more schools like this uh, need to be created so that schools are motivated and sister schools should be created so that a government school that is not performing well should be clubbed with a school that is performing well and you know uh, they should help each other so uh, this idea of sister state uh, should be uh, created. Second thing is Uh, You have also mentioned one very important point is that the gross involvement ratio presently is very high. Owing to the uh, pandemic, the gross enrollment ratio overall in India fell by 2.1% which is naturally going to come back up. But I think so, now that we have had students coming into the public school, retention of these students in public school and providing them better facilities is something that needs to be done. Because public schools have also been criticized and uh, I would not say wrongly criticized but uh, you know they, they have been criticized and there is some true fact to it that currently the number, uh, the investment that goes in maintaining of public school and the funding uh, is not proportionate to the uh, results that they produce you know better results need to be produced compared to the funding that has been given so i think so this gross enrollment ratio that has gone up in public school needs to be retained better facilities and uh, a model school along with sister schools should be uh, the way forward you know this is what i feel mm-hmm. and after the covid pandemic you know uh, recently uh, the government has brought changes to the syllabus in 9th to 12th class uh, a, a lot of uh, changes have come uh, in this uh, nine to twelfth, twelfth class, and we also have the National Education Policy. You know that is being implemented currently. Uh, it has just started its implementation. So I think so, a holistic training of the teachers also needs to be undertaken uh, because uh, in in a way we are just changing our policy after four decades. So, they should also be, you know, very uh, adapted to the new technology, uh, learning how to use internet very frequently and, uh, you know, uh, making proper use of technology such as, uh, I I would say, projector system in classrooms. I think so that is what is the uh, way forward uh, presently for the schools. And having said that, you know, uh, again, pointing out that, yes, enrollment in public school is bringing a change. This is what is being seen. But if you are to retain that... uh, gross enrollment ratio that has been uh, raised in the public schools compared to private then i don't think so it is of any value then it is just a temporary measure
0: mm-hmm. yeah and, and uh, like uh, one more point that, that uh, just struck me while while you were talking about the pandemic was that you know uh, there are tons of kids who have had a learning loss who have had uh, you know one or two years of schooling they, they might or might not have been able to cover the syllabus or or you know catch up to speed to what is going on in the school So I think uh, from a policy angle, what we also need is, uh, you know, adjustable uh, uh, time schedules so that uh, students who have either missed out on classes or missed out on uh, certain parts of their education, they can go back and get get those parts later on. Or, or, you know, uh, 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 a solution can be found where uh, the time uh, which has been spent away from school, uh, the learning loss that has occurred because of that, that can also be, uh, you know, uh, accounted for uh, in, in the rest of their uh, journey. And uh, since uh, we were talking about gross enrollment ratio, which is how many people are getting sort of enrolled uh, in, in, in school, uh, but what is also important is uh, how many people we are able to retain. So uh, while, uh, yeah, exactly, when people who, who join, uh, you know, we can have uh, like a policy push or, or, or like incentivize people to join schools. But then sooner or later, people find out that the school quality is not good or, uh, you know, they're not getting anything out of it. Or uh, they, they find that they can probably uh, contribute to the economic well-being of their family instead of uh, spending hours in school uh, learning nothing. So in, in, in all of those cases, uh, there, is, there is actually a turn of churn in India schools as well. And people drop out of school uh, even before class 5 or class 8 or class 10. So uh, what we also need to keep a close eye on is, is how many people are, uh, you know, making it to uh, class 8, how many people are making it to uh, class 10, and then uh, finally class 12 as well. Uh, so so uh, we need to have a close eye on all of these numbers when we look at gross enrollment ratios. Because uh, I remember from a few years ago that, uh, you know, the gross enrollment ratio for Indian, uh, India's females in primary school, primary schools was actually, uh, you know, 116%. So uh, let's say uh, the, the total population of females in India is 100, uh, and, and if all of them are, are sort of uh, you know uh, enrolled in, in, in a primary school, then their enrollment ratio is 100, right? But, but the, here the ratio was 116. So what that means is people who are outside the primary age bracket, even they are getting enrolled in primary school. That is why uh, you know number of people in, uh, enrolled in school is actually more than uh, the total population in that age bracket what that means is people who are older uh, than primary school are also getting enrolled in primary school and that is like one way how those enrollment ratio uh, can can increase but again uh, having the retention number and looking at both these numbers together is really important to get a true picture of uh, the education scenario in india
1: right you know uh, we have had beautiful schemes such as uh, midday meal uh, to capture this uh, and after the implementation of midday meal the dropout rates from school have been you know very low compared to what they were earlier because uh, free meal is being provided till class 8 and I think so this should be extended till class 12th because Mm -hmm. after class 10th is where the real dropout starts, you are not able to retain students you know uh, especially females they are put into household work because uh, uh, what what midday meals uh, do is they provide them nutritious food and now uh, after class um, uh, say it any sort of uh, freebie or. Subsidized scheme, but uh, this this provides a lot of incentive, and I have seen it first because the conditions of the student that come to public school is not uh, very I, w- I would say they're not very affluent when compared with the uh, general city uh, public schools, you know. So for them, this uh, one-time meal is a very big deal. You know, so just call it uh, uh, I would say a bait. But uh, the midday meal scheme, according to me, should be extended up to class 12 you know, especially. Uh, to retain this uh, extension of uh, these services and also uh, need of the r is to help promote these students after class 12 because uh, attaining education till age of 14 is now a fundamental right you know under article 21 a right but after that state do, does not have a responsibility uh, if the resources provide so it can do you know our constitution has been amended for that but i what i feel is that you know after class uh, uh, after the age of fourteen. Now that we have had uh, our national education policy, after the class of 14, uh, these students basically, they should be motivated to take up streams, you know, STEM fields or any such vocational trainings and the government should sponsor them uh, if those students are promising or something like that. That will also provide, you know, a a very good incentive for students to come and stay focused in the schools rather than uh, dropping out because they don't see a future after class, say 10th or 12th. So, this is something that also needs to be done because you know gross enrollment ratio uh, is linked to a higher vision as to what we will be doing after four years so if they say uh, if they see an, uh, a blank future after four years they'll you know just stop it right now and uh, create something for next four years so that is mm-hmm. something that also needs to be uh, taken up by the government
0: Right. Exactly. And, and you know, uh, the, like as as the final point of this topic, I would also uh, just quickly mention that, uh, you know, after 40 years, we've had uh, the national education policy come in and, and sort of change the policy environment in, in education. And uh, this, this actually points to a, a real problem within the Indian education system, that there is not enough reform, uh, whether it is in, at the policy level or it is at the syllabus level, where, uh, you know, uh, the things that are being taught to our kids, are not actually what is really required in the world to to, to succeed. So uh, what we also need is, is, is like a, uh, you know, a, a careful and a honest look at, at, at the syllabus and, and, you know, try and reduce all the elements which are actually not adding value uh, to, to, to the kid's life. So, uh, like we should have a very honest analysis of, of all the syllabus that there is because I do know uh, from my personal experience that a lot of the things that we studied in school are never really useful beyond exam fall. So, uh, what we need to uh, sort of do is uh, make a conscious effort to uh, try to make the school syllabus such that it actually helps people succeed in life, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, through access to economic opportunities or getting skills uh at at, 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 at some skill and uh, you know basically becoming employable through education because uh, right now oh, uh, education is sol- sort of seen uh, seen as this uh, virtuous good that uh, it's it's always good to be educated but uh, a lot more people would like to be educated if it was not just good but also utilitarian uh, and, and and you know it it it, it served a purpose uh, which was actually immediately clear Uh, Even though education does serve a purpose um, in in the sense that it teaches you a lot of things and it helps you succeed in the rest of your life. But at at, at the same time, if it was made more obvious, a lot more people who actually drop out of school would actually not drop out and, uh, you know, rationalizing the syllabus actually goes a long way uh, uh, in, in that direction.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right. So, yeah, I I think uh, we've had uh, quite a lot of discussion. Uh, Pander, do you have any final points on, on this or uh, we can move on? Yeah,
1: let's just move on to the next topic.
0: Yeah, okay, great. So, uh, next I actually wanted to talk about the India-UK uh, relationship. Uh, that is uh, sort of uh, seeing a lot of flux right now. So, uh, very recently, the British uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in India uh, for, for a long trip. And he visited uh, not just the capital, but also uh, other places in India like Ahmedabad and, you uh, uh, know, had quite a long trip. And uh, there were several things on his agenda. So uh, one is that India and UK have signed, uh, you know, this strategic comprehensive partnership. And uh, what it also does is actually paint the vision for the 2030 uh, India-UK relationship. So basically going up to 2030, they have just laid down... All the milestones that, that that they are going to try and achieve. Uh, the, the second thing which was on the agenda was the uh, was a free trade agreement between the India and the UK so uh, again on, on that uh, first round of negotiations has been done and uh, free trade agreements are notoriously hard to negotiate because both sides are sort of looking out for their own interests but uh, let's see if we can crack that then it would be a free trade agreement between the fifth largest economy and the sixth largest economy in the world it it has to be uh, really very significant. Then uh, another area of cooperation for India could be, uh, you know, because uh, Britain has such a uh, you know such a command over uh, maritime security, maritime domain awareness, and uh, through its naval bases, uh, not just in uh, Singapore, uh, Macau. Uh, Kenya, uh, British Indian Ocean Territory. So all all of these are areas which are uh, you know either directly controlled by British or they have treaties with the home country uh, for, for for you know naval bases in these areas. So uh, so basically having this you know uh, having a strategic partnership with uh, Britain is actually really useful for India uh, to 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 get uh, you know better hold of the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so uh, you know the, the the military partnership will also include uh, defence research collaborations, uh, w- which which could uh, mean that uh, you know since Britain is also a high technology country, there is potential for some technology transfer to India as as, as well through this team. And uh, you know uh, an- another uh, sort of uh, uh, wind uh, which is pushing these directions uh, these relations forward is actually uh, the Brexit. Uh, that had happened a couple of years back when uh, Britain moved out of the EU and, and sort of tried to distance itself, uh, trying to create a Great Britain uh, instead of just becoming another uh, part of the EU. And uh, w- w- uh, and uh, having close closer relationship with India actually helps them a lot because uh, because of their distance with the EU, they will have reduced trade and also reduced flow of talent. And India uh, uh, can sort of substitute for both of them. Of course, the Indian market is again, a very uh, attractive proposition for all British companies. And in the same way, India is actually looking for, uh, you know, um, a better uh, support for import of products such as fisheries into UK uh, and, and, you know, agri-products which India is good at into UK. So if you can solve these uh, problems, then I think there is a lot of potential in these ties. But, uh, you know, there are certain things that are also stopping Uh, these ties from uh, moving forward and one of them is the colonial prism through which these two countries are you know destined to always uh, you know uh, go through because it is like a sad part of our history the Chinese often uh, talk about the century of humiliation by the West so basically uh, between 1848 and 1948 uh, the Chinese actually had a 100 year uh, time period where the British and uh, the Western uh, you know, uh, Western European powers actually uh, uh, mangled a lot with the Chinese politics and uh, as our foreign minister S.J. Shankar only a couple of days ago had mentioned in a press conference that if the Chinese had one century of humiliation, India had two centuries of humiliation. So basically what the, the British did in China for 100 years, they did in India for 200 years and there has been uh, you know, tons of uh, studies about this and economic papers uh, coming out and the net effect was that the British actually took 45 trillion dollars out of Indian economy in, in you know, uh, today's dollars. And e- even by, uh, you know, uh, today's capitalist standards in the 27th century, if you if you take the entirety of Indian GDP, it will take India, you know, uh, 10 years or, or sorry, uh, 15 years just to, uh, you know, earn all of that back if all of India works all the time. Uh, so basically, uh, that is just to portray the size of, uh, you know, the economic extortion that has taken place uh, by, by the British on, on India. But of course those are things in the past we cannot really uh, blame the current generation for of ills the past recent. But it is something that, uh, that, that hampers the India-UK ties all, as always. And uh, you know it, it is actually heightened by the fact uh, when uh, the British uh, foreign secretary uh, comes to India and uh, tries to sell uh, the special role that Britain has played in, in the development of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, well, the special role was actually limited to causing famines and uh, you know uh, 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 making life miserable for Indian artists and Indian uh, farmers, and basically uh, having this whole racist outlook uh, around uh, in, in Indians being uh, a lower class uh, than the British and and I think uh, that has a, uh, has a lot of um, you know uh, that that is surely going to play out in in, in today's relations. And, uh, UK certainly cannot expect, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to continue with the same attitude. And, uh, if, if a relationship has to be established between India and the UK, it has to be actually a relationship of equals. And it cannot really treat India as, uh, as, you know, one of its dominions, uh, anymore because, uh, you know, independence was 75 years ago and India frankly has too much self-confidence these days to really care about the British. Uh, the British could actually be really careful because their next prime minister might actually be an Indian. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, of course, I uh, I will uh, stop rambling now and let uh, Panda sort of throw some light on the India UK
1: relationship as well. You know, again, you know, I usually quote this that the national dish of Britain is chicken tikka masala. (laughs) Yes, we we uh, again might have someday we might have an Indian origin Prime Minister in Britain. But having said that, you know, uh, there are things that you should always remember, that is your history. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are times when you need to uh, look your future, not through the lens of history. And I think so presently, this is one uh, such time for the next 10 or 15 years, especially due to two facts. One is that Britain has a permanent five uh, status in the UN. So majority of India's decision resolutions, you know, they, they need to be supported by the Britain and India has not been so openly hostile to Britain when compared with China. You know, China has its identity based on uh, these 100 years of uh, and th- this is what they are trying to do, these 100 years of repression. So it is believed uh, uh, by the Chinese uh, ideals that uh, these 100 years of humiliation that China has faced. So they are trying to undo these 100 years of humiliation. And this is the direction that they are going in. right? India on the other hand does not have such uh, rigid stance when it comes to this, Uh, second thing is that Britain uh, as an economy is the fifth largest GDP, you know it has again overtaken India and India has again gone back to uh, sixth position uh, in this covid pandemic. So having a tie with this country, especially after the Brexit when uh, the Britain goods now are imposed to taxes and tariffs in the European Union and vice versa, I think so India can play a very important role. This is being the practical uh, reason apart from being practical now we can look through the historical lens and i think so that is where you can diplomatically uh, counter pressure so historical lenses can be used to counter uh, unnecessary pressure or unnecessary uh, ideas of white man's burden in today's context you know uh, definitely we need to be seen as equal and we are i think so more than equals when it com- when it comes to uh, a country that has you know looted 15 years of our current gdp and still is only point uh, 2 uh, trillion ahead of us in gdp so that is something that uh, needs to be, you know, reminded of both the countries. But when it comes to uh, this practical situation, I think so. India-Britain relations need to be strengthened. Uh, we also have this Pakistan angle because you know, uh, Britain uh, maintains an equal footing with India and Pakistan. So, uh, and where there are economic ties, there is less likely uh, chances of war. So, uh, balancing India and Pakistan at the same time with Britain is what needs to be seen. But having said that, now that the world is moving away from China and uh, India is the next uh, supplier of the world and I would also say the manufacturer of world, the assembler of world. So uh, I think so every country wants to have favorable relations and uh, and when you know things are coming our way, we should not close the doors on the face of it is what I would like to say.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I, th- I think uh, UK is, is becoming increasingly aware of its status as a minor power uh, in, in, in the world. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the reality of the UN Security Council seat is is actually, uh, you know, uh, it does not uh, truly reflect the geopolitical situation in the world. And that is why UN is uh, seen as a failing institution. Because, uh, you know, UK does not even have, uh, you know, uh, like Haryana has more population than the UK. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, there, is, there is no point having a uh, U.N. Security Council uh, representation for a country like that, uh, e- even a country like France. So, uh, for example, there are more Telugu speakers in India than there are French speakers in France. So uh, basically the, the current representation system of the U.N. Security Council makes no sense. Uh, in, in large part uh, because of the representation of the uh, British and the French on, on the Security Council because they are just proxies for the U.S. vote. Uh, it can never happen in the next hundred years that uh, you know UK or France disagree with what the US does. So if the US uh, decides to abstain or veto a certain thing, then uh, UK and France will veto as well. And uh, you know, if, if if they agree, then uh, in, uh, you know no, no no dispensation in these two countries can uh, manage to disagree with the Americans. So uh, basically, uh, these uh, both 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 these countries are minor powers, and they should be treated as such. And uh, as far as it, it comes to relations with India, uh, you know, in India is is currently the more, the hottest property in in uh, you know in international affairs. So India should be in no hurry to to get into a relationship uh, with uh, with with the British, and only if you are offered uh, you know really very favourable terms, whether it is uh, visa access or it is free trade agreements or it is, uh, you know, uh, some sort of technology transfer that is taking place or, uh, uh, you know, uh, strengthening our uh, maritime security to domain awareness uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific. These are really key issues for India. If India is getting significant concessions in these, only then does it make sense to, uh, you know, get closer to a minor power, especially one with which we have had a chequered passed. So, um, uh, in, in India should be very cognizant of this fact, uh, it, it is actually the British, who have the burden of, uh, you know, uh, convincing us to get into a deal uh, because, uh, you know, it, it, it is the British who actually are in uh, need for new markets and, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in India is sort of a great uh, in emerging market and there are actually huge premiums being paid out for investments in India uh, because uh, because everyone can see the growth potential uh, that is there. So, uh, and, and, and the British can see that too. So, so India should use that fact. Uh, there is no hurry. in, in, you know, uh, trying to get this free trade agreement or trying to increase uh, India's relations uh, with the UK and, uh, you know, uh, frankly, as long as the British do not change their attitude uh, when when it comes to the superiority complex uh, that that they continue to have towards uh, the third world, uh, it's it's not just uh, South Asia, but also the Chinese and Africans and, uh, you know, even Latin Americans who, who, who face this issue where, uh, you know, these Western Europeans and Northern Americans actually feel superior, uh, you know, think themselves superior uh, in, in, in all these ways. So uh, actually, if, uh, until that act- attitude can be resolved, uh, the, like these relations are not really going to move forward. So, uh, a, a, uh, Britain actually needs to accept the past, uh, not, uh, you know, uh, try to uh, paint it as, as something which is good for India, because a lot of British historians, they still make the argument that British rule was so good for India, we ended up getting railways and all this public infrastructure but at what cost uh you know um i, I mean i will not go into uh, indian history again and all the ills that were caused by the british uh, because uh you know all of us are well aware so uh but there needs to be an acceptance of the past in order for the current relations to move forward and, and i think i i can foresee that being the biggest sort of challenge uh, in, uh coming up in in these relations. I and mean, if uk is really serious about Uh, you know, uh, building relations with India, then I think uh, they they should, uh, you know, recognize this fact uh, very clearly. So yeah, uh, I guess with that, uh, that that would be the last point on this topic, uh, if you have
1: any closing thoughts. That's it. Let's move on to the next topic. You know, you cannot ignore history, that is as simple as that. Having done something for 200 years, you simply cannot ignore it.
0: Yeah, uh, 100%. And, and I think uh, the, the Indian Dispensation is only now beginning to get the self-confidence to make these facts move. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy uh, at least that change has uh, come about. Alright, so uh, with that I think we can move on to the uh, final topic of the day. Uh, we are 37 minutes into today's conversation, so we have about 20, 20 odd minutes uh, still to go. And uh, what we're going to talk about are the increasing fuel prices in India. So uh, it's,
1: it's going to be a uh, talk around petrol and diesel. So pandit take it away. All right. So basically uh, this topic is regarding the high crude prices. So in this I will be uh, discussing as how the pricing in uh, fuel, say uh, ATF, the diesel and the petrol fuels is being done in India, what are the provisions regarding the bringing of uh, these fuels under the GST, uh, what is the breakdown of the structure of these prices, how the global war is impacting it and you know what is the future. Uh, for india when compare, uh, when when it comes to these prices you know so first thing is that you know uh, again recently Prime Minister uh, Modi have said that you know he has requested the states to reduce their VAT value petrol commodities so that cheap and diesel and petrol can be provided Mind you, the prices of diesel and petrol vary from state to state, and this variation is mainly due to the VAT so i 'll just break it down for you. So, for example, uh, in current context, uh, if the prices of diesel and petrol, uh, say, let's just take petrol, so it is close to 110 or 108. So, out of that, the basic price, the international market price, uh, of which the oil marketing companies basically procure it and process it, is around 57 rupees. right? So, that is approximately 50% of what we are, char- uh, we are charged. Apart from that, you know, there's transportation charges. That is hardly a fifth of a rupee. That is 0.2 or 0.23 rupee. After that the major charge that is being put on it is the exercise central exercise duty you know the central exercise duty the proceeds of the central exercise duty are totally appropriated by the center and you know uh, in in the current budget uh, it accounted for 18 point five percent of total uh, earnings by the center so you can just imagine the huge impact these uh, central exercise duty have on just the petrol and diesel prices uh, so that that is uh, uh, central excise duty apart from the central excise duty we have the value added tax you know these value added tax are imposed sp- uh, state specifically they vary from state, to state you know and uh, in in some states these uh, taxes back along with alcohol you know they account for approximately 30% of their state income so that is again a very very huge source of income and then we have this distribution commission uh, that is another tool piece so this is how the pricing of uh, petrol is done now there had been reports that uh, you know WhatsApp messages going around that we have had negative prices of fueling across the world in COVID and still uh, so much high prices in India. So what basically happens is that pricing in international market is being done on three fronts. You know we have the uh, WTI, West Texas uh, uh, Standard for the US fuel. Then we have the Brent standard for the European fuel, and then we have the M- Middle East standard for the uh, southern uh, these. Uh, region of the Middle East from where basically Asia or India generally uh, imports its fuel. Right. So uh, when this, uh, in, during the COVID era, what happened basically was that companies in the w, uh, WTI, the West Texas, uh, could not stop their production because stopping their production and then restarting is much more costly than uh, you know just letting those uh, containers that are holding on to your fuel, uh, just paying those containers for just holding that fuel. Because they did not have much storage capacity, everything was full. So these ships, that container ships that were transporting the fuel, because the demand had dropped, uh, you know, drastically low when uh, it had come to COVID. So the countries were not accepting more fuel. So these ships and countries, basically they were paid just to hold that petrol with them or the basically the crude with them, and that is in the context that uh, you know crude prices dropped negative because companies were in fact paying uh, to the uh, ships just to hold it rather than you know selling it. So this is where the crude prices are, but India was not impacted by that much because we do not import much from the uh, WTA, uh, West Texas, from the US region. The second is we do not have a very good storage capacity in India. Had we had a very good storage capacity, we would have been uh, benefited, you know, we could have refueled all our storage capacity. So this was in the context that, you know, uh, when there were messages going that prices world over are negative, why is India increasing its prices? Second thing, second issue is that you know, there is this issue of bringing fuel in GST. This will be taken up by uh, uh, sure you know, why the fuels are not being brought up into GST. Yeah, professor, your views on this.
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, like increasing fuel prices, there are actually uh, two reasons in India, uh, in India, they're cascading reasons. So one is that the international increase in uh, fuel prices because of, uh, you know, these supply constraints that are happening uh, due to the war. And, uh, uh, you know, in in general, because of the pandemic, uh, the international transport system uh, or the international supply chains have been disrupted. So what that means is uh, all goods now have become more costly to transfer. And uh, slowly, all of those inflation effects will make their way uh, to the end consumer as well. And uh, we're already seeing that in the fuel prices. uh, As as these fuel prices increase, uh, a drop in demand is also expected because uh, people stop taking that marginal trip. Or, 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 or that extra trip, when uh, you know, the, the fuel prices get out of Slow down in, in consumption, uh, which can have recessionary effects on, 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 on the whole economy. Now, I do think that the Indian economy is actually uh, quite well uh, based on strong fundamentals and i don't think that uh, you know just increasing fuel prices are going to uh, hamper its growth much but i do think it can slow it down because uh, you know uh, the energy is is basically what we fuel the entire economic machinery on and if the energy keeps getting costly then then it, it becomes impossible for us to uh, you know do it uh, efficiently the the other the other reason why the energy prices are increasing is because you know uh, when uh, let's say coal or uh, petroleum prices increase in the international market uh, the western richer countries with more buying power are still able to get all of their energy needs met. It is actually the uh, you know the third world countries who do not have enough money and they are the ones who are going to suffer when uh, there is not enough uh, coal or not enough petrol or not enough energy in the market because all the richer countries with greater buying power are still going to pay the higher prices in order to get their energy. Whereas uh, other countries will have to suffer through uh, power outages or uh, you know, uh, trying to ration their energy uh, usage. So India does not want to be in that place where it starts, where it needs to ration its its fuel. And uh, you know, well, we have this huge import dependence uh, for, for for fuel, and uh, that is also sometimes used by the government uh, for uh, you know, uh, as as an excuse for all of these high uh, excise tax and the value added tax and all of these taxes that. The, that are uh, you know on uh, laid on top of fuel, and of course, if it forms 18% uh, of, of of the entire government revenue, then uh, it it won't be very easy to to get rid of it. So uh, that is essentially one of the reasons why uh, fuel has not been included in the GST. Because once we do that, then uh, a lot of that revenue gets churned away uh, from the government and already the government operates with a fiscal deficit. So uh, losing more revenue is not the way to go for uh, the uh, finance ministry to actually manage its budget. Uh, now, having said that, uh, you know uh, there are uh, real inflationary effects that happen because of the cascade, uh, the international prices going up and again, uh, the uh, excise duties at home also increase because they are charged as a percentage of the total uh, fuel price. So if if the base uh, increases, then the tax paid on the base also increases. So, uh, you know, uh, while the government is really happy because it increases their revenue, uh, but the end customer is really sad because of the cascading effect and, uh, you know, the increase in uh, energy uh, uh, prices that happens. And surely uh, the effect will be seen in consumption trends uh, in, in India as well. And this is bound to hurt. Uh, in India's growth targets, uh, whether it is the 5 trillion target uh, you know, by 2025, or or uh, it is, uh, you know, whatever growth targets that we might have. Cheap energy is really how uh, we can, you know, uh, how, how, how we can, like, uh, uh, get rid of uh, this import dependence and, and dependence on fossil fuels in energy. And I think uh, that should be the next thing that we talk about, that how do we reduce this dependence? And, uh, uh, you know, uh, while uh, bringing uh, fossil fuels under the GST regime might, uh, you know, save the end customer, let's say 10 or 15% in in, in money that is spent, still, uh, you know, promoting, that would be in effect promoting the use of fossil fuels. Because, you know, if you're making them cheaper, then people are going to uh, use more of it. So uh, somehow that also does not uh, seem like the right policy. Uh, The the policy stance that should be taken here. Actually, needs to be uh, a movement away from fossil fuels. Uh, whether it is through increasing dependence on nuclear or it is uh, going the renewable route, uh, th- those are still open questions. But I think uh, what is certain is that we need to reduce the dependence on uh, on, on on fossil fuels such as uh, petrol. And our economy is hugely dependent on this. Uh, we have a huge uh, trade deficit uh, because of all the fuel that we import. So, uh, the, uh, like the, the the principal policy action. Uh, needs to be towards reducing this dependence, instead of trying to make it more efficient or trying to make it cheaper, uh, so that more, more more people use it. That that would be my take at least.
1: Right, you know, and this uh, current fuel prices also owe to the disruption that have been caused by the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Although we are not, you know, importing much uh, from the Brent's uh, crude, that Brent's crude as the European crude, but still the right. russian european war has a, a global impact. Because, you know, once the production yeah. of, uh, on those places is halted as a measure of safety. And naturally, the demand for the uh, Western, uh, West Texas Intermediate and the uh, East Asian, uh, Central Asian, uh, you know, these uh, Middle East, sorry. Middle East demand is yeah. been raised. And this is where the India is, you know, uh, importing. As a result, you know, yeah. what India has also done. It has uh, started to directly take uh, oil from the Russia, uh, despite the pressure that it is facing. You know, that is another game of a brilliant game of uh, diplomacy that is being you know undertaken but at the same time you know uh, the question of bringing up it in gst you know has been pointed out by asked that currently the taxes on uh, this petrol fuel that the government and the states uh, Levi are close to 80% you know 70 to 80% because you have a base price of 57 rupees and then you have another 2 or 3 rupees distributor charge and transportation cost that is 60 rupees and you're living another 50 rupees as a tax, you know, central excise and that. So that is close to 80, 90%. So that, uh, but in GST, the maximum permissible slabs of 28%. So if they're brought under GST, you know, you're going to forego that revenue of approximately 60% uh, tax revenue. And also in the GST, uh, because presently no input tax credit is given on petrol, but in GST, once you use your petrol and tax for your business, you're given input tax credit so that next time when you purchase something you have to pay that much less so it is going to be a very uh, harsh situation for the government when it comes to this although it has been notified uh, uh, that you know at, at the a date that will be decided by the gst council they might come but that date is yet to be decided right having said that uh, in covid also the number of uh, despite that the prices also did not go uh, low uh, going to one more reason was that government had claimed that you know it has increased its excise duty because it has uh, loaded out a lot of freebies, you know, Aatma, uh, Bharat uh, package, so that, you know, to keep the ration coming for the poor families. And they needed money for that, which was taken up uh, definitely from the petroleum uh, diesel prices, you know. So this is what is going on. Now, now that India imports 85% of our fuel, and we have a huge, uh, you know, import s- segment, you know, dominated by this. What are the steps that should be taken to reduce this? The first step and the foremost and the most primary step that comes to my mind, apart from fossil fuels, you know, uh, obviously going to electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles. I also think that presently in the current context for, say, next 10 years, till the time our capacity is not completely developed, till the time we do not find an alternate to lithium-ion batteries, say, sodium-ion or aluminum-ion or solid-state batteries, uh, till the time that research is going on, I think so we should also uh, look towards the uh, blending of petrol and diesel with bioethanol and biodiesel. Because, you know, India has set a standard for 2025, earlier it was 2030, for blending petrol by 20, like E20. So 20 a portion in a, a 100 liter petrol, 20, uh, 20 liters will be of uh, bioethanol. It's so not. that is going to be indigenously produced. And also uh, the consumption of petrol is going to come down. And it is also, also more environment friendly when compared with that. So this is something that needs to be looked upon immediately, in the immediate future. And in the long term, what I see is, that we have to diversify our energy uh, basket and we have to use uh, fossil fuels and, uh, sorry, we have to use uh, non-traditional uh, fuels such as uh, the solar energy and uh, at the same time we have to use these electric vehicles that have been promoted in the Western nations as of well. now. So these are the two major points that come to my mind and there's uh, any other point that comes to your mind regarding this.
0: Yeah. um, So um, like um, mixing of bio ethanol into uh, this, um, into petrol is actually a great step. It has already been done by Brazil uh, quite successfully. So uh, I I mean, uh, vehicles uh, need very little technology adaptation to adjust to this new fuel. Uh, If if we can do that and reduce uh, the import dependence by 20%, I think it is all for the better. So we should do that. And especially when India has the surplus grains, uh, that that are rotting away. So uh, these these rotting grains can actually be a great, uh, you know, source of uh, producing this bioethanol. You know? So I, I, I think uh, this is killing two birds uh, with with one stone, and and uh, definitely a policy which is worth pursuing for India. Again, uh, I, I, I do want to come back to uh, the, the emphasis that you know making uh, uh, fossil fuels such as petrol or uh, petrol mixed with bioethanol or diesel more accessible is is not the right way to go uh, you know uh, the the current world actually uh, already faces a huge problem that uh, you know uh, fossil fuels are currently heavily subsidized because of the amount of investment that goes into fossil fuels and and you know governments across the world are investing trillions of dollars to help people buy uh, these fossil fuels so uh, somehow we need to get rid of that subsidy of, of these fossil fuels and invest that money into renewable sources of energy such as nuclear or, or such as solar or, 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 or all of these other forms of energy that are uh, coming about. Uh, so, so that is one. And, and, and the second thing is, uh, you know, uh, we have to be long-termist about this uh, because uh, we're going to run out of fossil fuels. So, so there has to be a huge investment into uh, research and development of new sources of energy as, as well. So, uh, you know, energy uh, research and development has been stagnant for the last 40 years. Uh, We we haven't really had any new breakthroughs come in since the 1970s. And, uh, you know, uh, even nuclear, uh, you know, which is something that uh, makes complete sense right now to do, uh, even that faces huge regulatory challenges and, uh, you know, all of this virtue signaling that is going on. Um, uh, what we also need to work on is, is, is sort of have like a long-distance long, uh, long distance energy transmission. Uh, so that, uh, you know, uh, as and when we come up with the feasible uh, mechanism to have uh, nuclear energy being produced, we, can, we also have the ability to transport it to long distances. Because currently, the, with the transmission systems that we have for energy, uh, they, they are very lossy and, and, and you know, it'll, it'll lead to huge losses. So, uh, I mean, uh, slowly investing in all of these steps will will help uh, diversify our our energy, uh, you know, our our energy consumption. And uh, right now, uh, there are these huge industries that are running uh, just based uh, like just on coal or just on fossil fuels, uh, burning huge amounts of oil uh, just to keep the production going. If all of that industrial capacity needs to shift to, uh, you know, uh, let's say nuclear energy. Uh, which will uh, re- reduce this dependence even more. So, uh, while uh, you know mixing ethanol is, is one way to make it cheaper as well as uh, like cheaper for the end customer and cheaper for the Indian state as well. Uh, but, but at the same time, I think it is another policy which uh, further promotes use of fossil fuels, which is uh, something that I don't agree with uh, philosophically. So, so that would be my, uh, my my last point on this one.
1: Right, you know, uh, yes, I agree to your point that, you know, it incentivizes more research towards that same field. And Brazil has gone up to as high as E85, you know, 85% ethanol. So that uh, Mm -hmm. itself is a field. But what I also feel is that, you know, for short term, this can be a measure to, you know, while we are still researching on the proper batteries to be created for the electric vehicles. I think so, this is a short Mm -hmm. term measure that needs to be taken. You know, it is a necessary evil for the, say, next 10 or 15 years. Having said that, you also talked about this transmission of energy that takes a lot of power. Mm-hmm. So just for our viewers, and it's a very curious fact that China has experimented and is experimenting currently on the transmission of uh, electricity using ultra high voltages direct current lines. Until now, it's always the alternating current that has been transmitted. Uh, and the transmission has always always been done through alternating current. So for our viewers, uh, if you do have time, uh, time please do, and check, uh, do go and check this uh, direct high current transmission lines. Uh, and uh, we'll be discussing this topic next time uh, because this itself is a, a, a marvelous feat that you know is being experimented upon. Uh, having said that, I think so for uh, petrol and uh, diesel prices, what I see is uh, you know we just need to reduce our uh, consumption just uh, and uh, more uh, since major consumption of petrol and diesel is in the transport sector. So I think the public transport as of now and better investment in technology, more fuel efficient. Uh, is the only thing that can be done and uh, international disruptions are something that are very uh, I, I would say unpredictable in nature and then they can occur anytime. So India needs to be prepared, having better storage facilities as well. But in the long term we always, uh, you know, we have to have an uh, alternate to that and I think so India is moving towards that, you know, uh, when, when it comes to fossil fuels uh, and uh, these uh, solar panels and direct air energy, you know, there is a comparison that is going to Happen between the utility of fossil fuels versus the advantages that
0: uh, the batteries and the uh, renewable sources. So that is my last take on this. Right. Uh, I, I think uh, we've made uh, important points uh, on on this fossil fuel debate. And uh, just because we have a couple of minutes, I would I would like to uh, you know uh, take the time to uh, appreciate the policy of the uh, you know uh, promotion of electric vehicles that has been taken by the Indian state. Because, uh, you know, uh, India is not a country that is blessed with uh, uh, resources of fossil fuel. So uh, we we essentially do not have any baggage which is stopping us to moving from electric vehicles. And I think it is a very, uh, you know, uh, very uh, smart policy to actually uh, put all your efforts into building the infrastructure for electric vehicles. So we already have huge investments in Indian cities uh, into electric charging stations and uh, you know subsidies on electric cars and we've already had uh, you know a few affordable electric car models come out in india now i do agree that the technology for these cars is still not up to power uh the battery starts to degrade very quickly and uh, lithium itself is another uh you know uh, another resource which india does not have access to so until we can figure out better battery technologies uh, which can make these cars uh sort of Competent and in a better proposition than uh, cars which run on diesel or petrol, and and uh, like uh, we need to put all our efforts uh, towards that because if we can um, make electric cars say uh, you know uh, twice uh, as cheap as uh, petrol cars or as diesel cars, then automatically we'll see a lot of adoption uh, coming through for them. And uh, you know uh, th- that would make things uh, much simpler for India. So I, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate uh, the uh, the emphasis on electric vehicles that has been placed by the Indian state. And I think we should continue to do that. And uh, you know, electric vehicles is the future. Uh, the battery technology is is yet to be figured out completely. But but I'm sure by 2025 we'll have solid state batteries, and, and a lot of the battery problems that we see right now with lithium ion batteries will will go away. Right. all right so yeah uh, I, I think with that uh, we've come to the end of episode 63 so uh, thank you so much to everyone who joined us live and uh, who is going to watch us later on across all of the social media channels lately we have been getting good response on on uh, our, our reels uh, so we'll continue to post these reels and, and we do understand uh, you know in in today's world uh, that uh, attention spans are really short People don't really want to listen to one-hour episodes, but if you can deliver these insights in in a bite-sized fashion, uh, which is, uh, you know, let's say 30 seconds or 60 seconds, then a lot more people get interested and and we are seeing that. So so thanks a lot for that. And uh, we will also have audio version of this episode on all the podcasting platforms, whether it is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll also put this up on YouTube eventually, so uh, do uh, go and um, subscribe to us there. And as always, uh, thank you so much to Panda for uh, you know uh, coming up with his brilliant insights on this. Well. Thank
1: you, Professor, you know for contributing and you equally bringing up some fascinating points. And thank you to all our viewers, you know for the support that they're showing. And please continue.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. All right, guys. So uh, episode sixty-three in the books. See you all next week. Bye-bye.